You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is Second Decade Off Topic. At shortly after 10 in the morning on Sunday, July 3, 1988, an Airbus A300 plane took off from Bandar Abbas Airport in the country of Iran along the coast of the Strait of Hormuz. The plane had 290 people on board. This was a commercial flight run by Iran Air headed for Dubai on the other side of the Persian Gulf. The flight should have taken 28 minutes to get there. A few minutes later, a ship patrolling the Persian Gulf, an Aegis-class cruiser named the USS Vincennes, fired two SM-2MR surface-to-air missiles at Iran Air Flight 655. One of the missiles struck a direct hit. The plane exploded instantly, and the wreckage fell into the sea. None of the 290 people on board, most of whom were Iranians, survived. More than 30 years later, this incident is still shrouded in mystery and usually accompanied, when it's remembered at all, with recriminations. The context in which it happened was very tense and complicated, reflecting the dizzyingly complex geopolitics of the 80s, especially in the Middle East. But the Iran Air Flight 655 shootdown has connections to events of the 80s that go way beyond the Iran-Iraq war, which was going on at the time, or the broader conflict between the United States and Iran, which really began with the Iranian Revolution in 1979, and continues in many ways right up to the present day. Traveling by plane through hostile territories was hazardous to your health in the 80s. About five years earlier, on September 1, 1983, a Korean Airlines jet, Flight 007, wandered off course over the Pacific due to confusion regarding its autopilot mode. There was no GPS system in 1983. The plane strayed mistakenly into airspace claimed by the Soviet Union, and a couple of big fighters shot it down. 269 people died in this disaster, and it sparked international outrage against the Soviets. This was not the first time that something like this had happened. There was an eerily similar incident that happened in April 1978, where the Korean Airlines Flight 902 also strayed off course, probably due to magnetic interference, and was shot at by Soviet planes. The only reason why the Flight 902 incident isn't as famous as Flight 007, that was the 1983 shootdown, was because in 1978 the plane managed to make an emergency landing, and only two lives were lost. The press and the world treated the shootdown of Iran Air Flight 655 very differently than the Soviet attack on KAL-007 in 1983. In the earlier incident, the Russians were pilloried as ruthless butchers who shot women and children out of the sky. In 1988, most of the coverage in the Western press focused on mitigating factors, 
why the captain of the USS Vincennes, William Rogers, thought, mistakenly it turns out, that Iran Air Flight 655 was actually an F-14 fighter plane coming down to attack his ship. A lot was made of exactly where the ship was at the time, though it turned out that the Vincennes had entered Iran's territorial waters at the time it fired, chasing Iranian gunboats who had fired at an American helicopter earlier that morning. What on earth were American warships doing there, patrolling the Persian Gulf, which was the fault line of the most destructive war that occurred in the 20th century, with the exception of the two world wars? The answer is really complicated. I'll try to explain it in a little while, but I guarantee the whole thing will make your head spin. The Iran Air Flight 655 incident wasn't the only tragedy in the skies that happened in 1988. On December 21st of that year, Pan American Airways Flight 103, a long-haul flight from Detroit to Frankfurt, West Germany, blew up in midair over Scotland. The disaster killed all 243 people aboard the plane and 11 on the ground when the wreckage crashed into the town of Lockerbie in Scotland. Originally, it was thought that the Pan Am 103 bombing was retaliation for Iran Air 655, but that turned out not to be the case. This incident, Pan Am 103, is much more well-known than Iran Air 655. The tentacles of the Pan Am 103 story, they stretch outward to touch politics and diplomacy, as well as criminal justice and law. Believe it or not, criminal investigations stemming from that bombing are still going on today, 30 years later. Libyan terrorists commanded by Muammar Gaddafi committed the attack. Gaddafi, who had to be one of the strangest dictators of the 20th century, I mean, he was really out there, he was deposed and assassinated in a revolution in 2011. While the exact extent of his personal involvement in the Lockerbie attack is still unclear, the leading theory is that he ordered it as a retaliation for an American airstrike against Libya in April 1986, ordered by President Ronald Reagan itself retaliation for various other terrorist attacks committed by groups that Gaddafi openly supported. Gaddafi may have had a personal grudge over this attack. The Libyan government reported at the time that his baby daughter Hannah was killed in the airstrike. However, whether this is really true or not is far from clear. In 2016, one Hannah Gaddafi was reported alive and well, working as a doctor in Tripoli. Records found by Western reporters in Libya during the 2011 revolution also refer to a Hannah Gaddafi who was clearly alive and well after 1986, though whether Gaddafi adopted another daughter and named her Hannah as a tribute to the baby who was killed, that's a possibility. The United Nations condemned the 1986 airstrike. British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who let Reagan use British air bases to launch the strike, was heavily criticized at home. The attack probably was illegal under international law, but Reagan received a big boost in popularity, finally appearing to be tough on terrorism. Five months later, it was revealed that his administration sold weapons to the government of Iran, which the Reagan administration accused of supporting terrorism, in a bid to get American hostages out of Lebanon. This all sounds like a mafia movie, hits and counter-hits, retaliations and grudges, and behind-the-scenes intrigues. What's amazing is not that this is what world politics was like in the 80s, but that so little has changed since then. Understanding the tangled web of geopolitics during the 1980s teaches us almost, about, almost as much about our modern world as it does about the world of 30 years ago. That's why this history matters, and why in this bonus episode we're diving back 
into the 1980s. Second Decade is a historical podcast about a fascinating time in history, the 18-teens, and how that little studied period shaped the modern world. Once in a while, though, you got to spread your wings and branch out a bit. On Second Decade Off Topic, I'm going to give you some more history that falls outside the parameters of the main podcast. Informal, less scripted, perhaps less serious, Off Topic is to Second Decade what the people of New Orleans refer to as a land gap. An unexpected extra. Hello and welcome to another edition of Second Decade Off Topic. On this show, I usually cover the world as it was in the 18-teens, but in Off Topic, I go, well, off topic. Historical subjects outside the second decade of the 19th century. This is part two of the Jake's 88 special. On January 15th, 2019, I'm releasing my new novel called Jake's 88. It's currently available for pre-order on Amazon. In connection with the book, which is I repeat fiction, not history, I thought it might be fun to do some off-topic shows that are about history, specifically the history of the 1980s and why it matters. In the last episode, I shed kind of a a roving spotlight on various topics from 80s history, including American politics, pop culture, race relations, and climate change. We're going to do kind of some of the same thing today. Jake's 88 is fiction. It's a coming-of-age romance about a young man growing up in middle America in the 1980s. As the title tells you, his name is Jake, and the book chronicles a year in his life, specifically the year 1988. Growing up in the 80s was really strange. It was a weird mixture of optimism and complete nihilism. I already talked in part one about the Cold War and the threat of nuclear annihilation and how that seeped into pop culture and everyday consciousness. The Cold War started to moderate when Reagan began to have a series of summits with the Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev. The first two, uh, first at Geneva in November 1985 and uh, Reykjavik, Iceland in 1986, They didn't really seem to accomplish much. But the next year, 1987, there was a breakthrough in negotiations, which led to the INF Treaty. INF stands for Intermediate Nuclear Forces, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces. This treaty banned a category of nuclear weapons. Ironically, the same category of weapons, principally Pershing missiles, that Reagan deployed across Western Europe in 1981 and 82, which caused a huge groundswell of public protest in Germany, France, and Britain. This treaty has since been torn up. I remember watching on my TV, I had a little uh, 13-inch television in my bedroom. I remember watching as Reagan and Gorbachev signed the INF Treaty in the East Room of the White House. There was a sense of relief, a sense of optimism, uh, but it's not like the world suddenly got so much calmer. Stuff like the Flight 655 shootdown, which happened just seven months later, demonstrated on a daily basis how dangerous the world still was, even as U.S.-Soviet relations were improving. Iran seemed to be just as dangerous an enemy as the Soviet Union. In my early childhood, I vividly recall the Iranian hostage crisis. In November 1979, a group of militant students in Iran stormed the U.S. embassy in Tehran and took over 50 Americans hostage. This action was not ordered by the Iranian government, then run by Ayatollah Khomeini, but Khomeini uh, ultimately supported it. The issue there involved the Shah of Iran, Reza Pahlavi. 
he had been overthrown in the Islamic Revolution of February 1979, which is one of the most important events of the 20th century. The thing was, the Shah was a good friend of the United States, a stooge, really. Uh, the CIA had helped his government come to power in 1953, and then he spent the next 25 years cutting sweetheart deals for Iranian oil to the United States, while also building up his military with American weapons. The political, cultural, and religious undercurrents that sparked the 1979 revolution in Iran are way too complex to get into in a 45-minute podcast. Basically, though, it marked a very key moment in the Middle East's relationship to the West, which now uh, depended heavily on Middle Eastern countries for their oil, which was key to the post-World War II economic boom. The Shah was overthrown, but he was not executed. He fled Iran to the West and then came down with the most unfortunate case of cancer in recent world history. The Shah begged his old friend, President Jimmy Carter, uh, to allow him to travel to the U.S. to receive cancer treatment. Carter decided to allow him in against the uh, recommendations of his advisors. This was the decision that sparked the taking of the hostages. Ironically, the cancer treatment was not effective, and the Shah died a couple of months later. Even after his death, Iran would not release the hostages. Nothing worked. Carter tried a number of back-channel methods to negotiate with Iran. No dice. In April 1980, he tried a mil military rescue, which went spectacularly wrong when a few of the helicopters developed mechanical trouble and when another one crashed into a military transport. I certainly remember the hostage crisis. Uh, I was eight, but uh, you could see it everywhere. People would put handwritten signs in the windows of their houses, counting the number of days that the hostages had been in Iran. Everywhere you looked, there were yellow ribbons tied to trees. I remember seeing a billboard over a highway where we often drove by. It had a picture of Ayatollah Khomeini on it and the words, Don't let him win. Boycott Iranian oil. The picture was even more complicated by the Iran-Iraq War, which broke out in September 1980. The story of this conflict is really complicated, but it has its roots in both the Iranian Revolution of 1979 and what's called the Pan-Arab Movement, which came from a very different tradition. Iran's revolution was, in a way, similar to the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 in Russia, except it was grounded in religion, Islam, rather than in a political ideology, that uh, being communism. Khomeini's ideology stressed ultimately that there should be unity among Muslims, rejecting national or even ethnic identities as a common unifier. In Khomeini's view, it was Islam itself that was the glue, and the ideal was to unify all Muslims under one rule, kind of like the uh, caliphate of the Middle Ages. The 1979 Iranian Revolution, like the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, was thought of as the first victory in this broader struggle that would eventually sweep up other Islamic countries, just like the Bolsheviks thought 1917 was the first victory in an ultimately worldwide socialist revolution. Iran, therefore, sought to export their own revolution to other Islamic countries. Pan-Arabists, or Arab nationalists, those terms are interchangeable, they saw things differently. Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was the longtime president of Egypt until he died in 1970, he was the most prominent exemplar of Arab nationalism, which saw unity in terms of ethnic identity among Arabs and less in terms of Islam. 
I might add that most Arab nationalists were Sunni Muslims, where Iran is predominantly Shia, and there's also an ethnic difference. Uh, Iranians are not Arabs, and vice versa. Qaddafi, who came to power in Libya in 1969, he was a pan-Arabist. So was the Ba'ath Party in Iraq, which Saddam Hussein started to gain control of beginning in the 1960s. In 1979, Saddam con- consolidated his control over the party and took over the country of Iraq. This was a couple of months after the Iranian Revolution. Saddam and the Ba'ath Party were mostly secular. They were not religious. I mean, obviously they were Muslims, but the identity of the Ba'ath Party was not rooted in Islamic theology. The Ayatollah Khomeini thought that Iraq would be a great place for the next stop on the grand tour of Islamic revolution. He called upon the Iraqi people to overthrow Saddam. This was obviously a threat to Saddam's government because he perceived there was a fifth column, he perceived correctly, there was a fifth column of hardline Shia fundamentalists within Iraqi society. And they felt a lot chummier with Khomeini, who they saw as a spiritual leader, than they did with Saddam, who they viewed as a tyrant. The actual trigger of the Iran-Iraq war was almost immaterial. The two countries were at odds over some islands in a waterway called the Shat el-Arab, which had formerly been Iraq's only outlet to the Persian Gulf, meaning its only place where it could get its number one export, oil, to market without counting on pipelines going through neighboring countries. A series of border skirmishes uh, between Iraq and Iran was going on in this area throughout the spring and summer of 1980. By the late summer, Saddam decided that his time was running out to try to eliminate the existential threat that Iran posed to his regime. Every day that the uh, uh, Khomeini regime remained in power, it grew stronger, and he was losing his chance to destroy it. So on September 22, 1980, Iraqi forces engaged in a massive, full-scale invasion of Iran. This was a bloody, bloody war. The very first big battle killed 14,000 people. Those are World War I-level casualties. And it didn't get much better from there. Although reports and pictures from the war were rarely featured in the Western press, this absolutely brutal conflict dragged on throughout most of the 1980s. The Iranians used uh, what's called human wave attacks, sending tens of thousands of lightly armed troops converging on single areas to overwhelm Saddam's forces. This really was like World War I trench warfare, where waves of guys would get cut down by machine guns. Iranian soldiers would strap explosives to motorcycles and ride straight into the Iraqi lines, shouting, Allah is great. They used chemical weapons. They used child soldiers, 12-year-old kids going out there to face machine guns. In 1982, there was a battle called Operation Ramadan that was the largest land battle of the 20th century since World War II. Also, like World War II, each side used large-scale strategic bombing, clouds of bombers going back and forth like it was 1943. Oh, and Scud missiles, which were similar to Nazi V-2 rockets. I mean, this thing got really, really ugly. Then came what's called the Tanker War. This huge conflict, the Iran-Iraq War, was centered on a fairly small area, and the most strategic piece of real estate was the northern part of the Persian Gulf, where oil tankers left Iranian territory. Starting in 1984, Saddam would send spiffy little speedboats armed with missiles and machine guns to destroy Iranian oil tankers coming into the Gulf, and uh, Iran, of course, uh, uh, responded in kind. 
Iraq was effectively landlocked by the war. In order to get its oil out, uh, Saddam had to rely on other countries he was at least moderately friendly with to ship his oil out. Ironically, most of these Allied tankers were from Kuwait, which was the country he would eventually attack and invade in 1990. As a form of economic warfare, Iran started attacking Kuwaiti and Saudi tankers, which got a big no-no from the big powers, principally the U.S. and Britain. In order to protect the oil tankers of their allies, Kuwait and Saudi were both key U.S. allies, and Iraq was too to some extent, Reagan gave his favorite order, send in the military. This is what American naval forces were doing there. What's more, in early 1987, the government of Kuwait asked the U.S. to do more than this. The idea was that they would temporarily re-register Kuwaiti tankers as American ships, flying the American flag while they transited the danger zone in the PG. This meant that if Iran attacked them with their little spiffy speedboats, it would technically be an act of war against the United States. Reagan was all for this. Uh, This was called Operation Earnest Will. The irony here is that the Iranians were launching far fewer attacks against tankers than the Iraqis were. The Iraqis were targeting anything that was headed toward Iran. But Iran was the traditional enemy of the United States, so anyway, this is how it turned out. On May 17, 1987, an Iraqi pilot in a French-built business jet modified to carry missiles made the bold military move of pumping two Exocet missiles into an American frigate, the USS Stark, thinking it was an Iranian oil tanker. Now, you might find this a very odd mistake to make, considering that, you know, oil tankers are several times larger than Navy frigates, they aren't painted gray, and they aren't bristling with missiles and radar masts. As it turned out, though, the Iraqi plane fired its missiles from 22 miles away. I did not know that. I also did not know that the Stark sensors failed, which meant that the missiles came as a total surprise. And when the second one blew up, it knocked out the missile defense system, which meant that the Navy could not fire back. 37 Americans died in this attack. Despite this, somehow the captain of the Stark, one Glenn R. Brindell, was blamed by the Navy for not defending his ship. He was ultimately cashiered from the service and wound up selling real estate in Hampton Roads, Virginia. This is precisely what Captain William Rogers was afraid was happening to the Vincennes in July 1988. Because of the Stark incident, everybody working defense on those ships was totally keyed up, and they were trained to see everything coming at them as a threat. There was even a psychological study done of the Iran Air 655 incident, and a condition called scenario fulfillment was blamed. Basically, the way this works, if you're trained to react on a hair trigger to a threat, you're more likely to perceive a threat coming at you, even if there's nothing there. This is a very sad story. A bunch of shot down airliners, lots and lots of dead people, a series of really unfortunate mistakes that lead to recriminations and retaliations. But this was the tense reality of the world situation in 1988, even as the Cold War was coming to an end. But look at all the stuff this story has touched. We've talked about the Iran-Iraq War, the Iranian Revolution, Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi, Flight 007, the Cold War. This kind of thing is why the history of the 80s is so crucial to understanding the world as it is now. We're going to change gears now. The top half of the show is mainly focused on political and international conflict in the 80s, leading up to the crucial year of 1988. I do get tired of talking about uh, war and conflict on this show, though, 
So let's pivot to something just as interesting and much less bloody, the cultural history of the 80s, and particularly this year, 1988, which is in many ways peak 80s. I remember 1988 pretty well. After all, I wrote a book on it, Jake's 88, the novel that's coming out, and without which I wouldn't be doing this episode. Before I wrote this episode, though, I played a little game with myself. I wrote down a list of my guesses for the top three movies, TV shows, and pop artists in terms of charts, rating, grosses, etc. for the year 1988, what I recall being uh, the most popular ones, uh, based on what I remember was big that year. So we're talking about the United States here. Uh, sorry, this is so American-centric, but um, this heavily involves personal reminiscences. Now, mind you, uh, these are my guesses after being back in the unique headspace of 1988 while writing the book, Jake's 88, written mostly, or at least the last draft written mostly in the past three or four months. So these are my guesses, uh, not cold after 30 years, but after considerable exposure to what was going on culturally in 1988. So first, uh, movies. Here were my guesses for the top three movies of 1988. Number one, Die Hard. Number two, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Number three, Cocktail. Now, some explanation for my guesses is in order. Most of us, including me, remember Cocktail starring Tom Cruise as a bomb, and it was a terrible movie. But thinking back to how ubiquitous it was, how often you saw clips of Tom Cruise throwing around those cocktail shakers, how often you heard that sappy Beach Boys song, you know, that, that Kokomo song, I judge that, uh, um, good or bad, a movie with that kind of reach into your mind had to have been a top grocer. A funny a little aside, well, maybe funny, uh, on that Kokomo song, nowadays uh, there's a thing, you see it on YouTube, about uh, misheard lyrics, you know, when you hear lyrics in a song, and you think that they're totally different than they really are. Uh, there's a line in that uh, Kokomo song that uh, where they uh, one the line is that Montserrat Mystique. Montserrat, of course, used to be a Caribbean vacation island. In 1988, I didn't know what Montserrat was, much less that it had a mystique. So when I heard the song, all I could hear in that line was mounds of rotten stink which doesn't sound like a vacation paradise at all. I knew that couldn't be what the lyrics said, but uh, that's what it sounded like to me. Of course, since 1988, Montserrat does not have much of a mystique anymore. Uh, the island was virtually abandoned after the catastrophic volcanic eruption in 1995. No one could have foreseen that in 1988. Anyway, back to movies. Um, I chose 1, 2, and 3, Die Hard, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Cocktail. Looking up the actual top-grossing movies of 1988, I only got one of these right. I was very surprised to learn that the top-grossing movie of 1988 was Rain Man, starring Dustin Hoffman. Of course, I remember that film, and it won the Academy Award for Best Picture that year, but uh, I had no idea that it was as big as all that. Rain Man grossed $354 million. I had no idea. The movie was very influential in that it focused uh, people's attention on autism, something many people knew about in the 80s, but nobody was talking about it, certainly not the way they do today. What I really do remember about Rain Man was the score. I even had a tape of the soundtrack, I recall. The, uh, the score was written by Hans Zimmer, one of the great movie composers. He went on to create one of the all-time most awesome movie soundtracks ever, that being Gladiator in 2000. Uh, indeed, if you go back and listen to Rain Man, you can start to hear Zimmer's style coming together. 
Number two top grossing film I got right. I chose Who Framed Roger Rabbit as the second highest grossing movie of 1988, and that turned out to be correct. It raked in $329 million. Roger Rabbit is in fact mentioned in Jake's 88, and I do remember it was big that summer. Uh, Cartoon characters interacting with human actors, that doesn't sound so unusual today, but in 1988 it was groundbreaking. Roger Rabbit was also the first time that classic Warner Brothers cartoon characters appeared in the same production as Disney characters. For example, there's an inspired scene of a piano duel between Daffy Duck and Donald Duck, and later on in the picture, Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny show up in the same frame. Uh, Bob Hoskins played the detective, great actor, uh, and the character of Jessica Rabbit was voiced by Kathleen Turner, who was starting to come off her career high about 1988. She had peaked a couple years earlier in Peggy Sue Got Married, for which she got an Academy Award nomination. Among the blockbusters of the 80s, Roger Rabbit is something of an outlier. It was not part of a franchise. Despite a lot of talk, a sequel has to date never been made. The film was based on a somewhat obscure novel, uh, but a novel with a cult following. Uh, The book was by Gary K. Wolfe. It was called Who Censored Roger Rabbit and published in 1981. The book was significantly different than the movie. Uh, I read it and actually thought the book was better in many ways. Number three top-grossing movie of 1988 was Coming to America with Eddie Murphy. I forgot about this movie. It's kind of hard these days to think back to a time when Eddie Murphy was such a huge star. He completely slipped my mind when I was writing this list. But he was huge at the time, more so in the mid-80s, though, coming off Beverly Hills Cop than the late 80s. Coming to America, directed by John Landis, was really his last big hit. Uh, Only uh, a couple years later, he would be doing stuff like Adventures of Pluto Nash. I recall Coming to America as the movie that introduced everyone, or at least most people, to Arsenio Hall. Right about that time, his late-night talk show started to gain traction, and uh, by the early 90s, it was an institution. When he first ran for president in 1992, Bill Clinton famously played the saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show. Arsenio was kind of a classier talk show than many of the others that followed in the 1990s. But 1988 was certainly the beginning, or at least the very first visible moment, of the devolution of the talk show as a cultural form. After Geraldo Rivera was ruined in 1986 by the debacle of the Al Capone's Vaults special, where he cracked open an underground chamber beneath the Lexington Hotel in Chicago, expecting to find lost secrets of Al Capone and finding only dirt and empty liquor bottles, Rivera was essentially radioactive in mainstream journalism. 1988 was the year of the infamous brawl on the Geraldo Rivera talk show, where a raging neo-Nazi clocked him across the face with a chair when a fight broke out on the set. This type of combative journalism, if you can call it journalism, was taken to new heights in the 1990s, especially by Jerry Springer, but that sort of format has roots with Geraldo, and also with Morton Downey Jr., for whom 1988 was also a big year. Anyway, I digress. It's easy to do that, given all the cultural connections between things in the 80s. But see, look, we went from Eddie Murphy and Coming to America to Arsenio Hall, Bill Clinton, Geraldo Rivera, Al Capone, Nazis, Jerry Springer, and Morton Downey Jr., all linked through connections that stretch back to 1988. Incidentally, Die Hard, which I guessed uh, incorrectly was the top grocer of 1988, was actually number nine that year. Ironically, it was outgrossed by Cocktail, which was number seven. My thinking was right that it was a bigger movie than most people remember, but it wasn't quite that big. 
Okay, let's turn to my television list. My guesses for the top three TV shows in 1988 were as follows. One, Cosby Show. Two, A Different World, which was a spinoff of The Cosby Show. And three, Dynasty. I mean, primetime soaps were big in the 80s, so I figured Dynasty had to be in there somewhere, right? In some ways, I did much better on my TV list than I did with the movie list, and also in some ways much worse. First of all, TV popularity is measured by season, not calendar year, so there are really two metrics we're looking at here. First, the 1987-88 television season and the 1988-89 season. 1987-88 season, I was right on the first two, Cosby Show and Different World. Uh, I talked about the Cosby Show in the last episode, and it's very tricky racial class and sexual dimensions. A Different World was in many ways related to the Cosby Show, uh, and I'll talk about that in a minute. The one I got wrong, at least for that season, was that I forgot Cheers, which is the third most popular show in the 1987-88 season. For the 1988-89 season, I was two for three. Most popular was Cosby, second was Different World, but number three that season was Roseanne, which I forgot about. I associate Roseanne much more with the 90s than with the 80s, but it's true, it did debut in fall 1988. I think there's a class issue connected with Roseanne. The show appealed to working class families, which was a success largely because that was a kind of underserved demographic on TV in the late 80s. Now, if you notice the unconscious class bias that I just exhibited by assuming that a lot more people were watching Dynasty, a show about rich white people, than the number of people who were really watching it in 1988. In the 1987-88 season, Dynasty was number 41 in the Nelson rankings, which is uh, pretty pathetic. The next season, 88-89, the show's last, it was number 69. Uh, and it was canceled in 1989. However, I'm not totally delusional. A Dynasty was the number one show on television in the 1984-85 season, and it was knocked off its perch by, survey says, ding, The Cosby Show. So I'm not going to talk much more about Cosby. He came up in the last episode, uh, but I said I would talk about a different world, and this really is a fascinating subject. The whole concept for a different world stemmed from the very short-lived stardom of actress Lisa Bonet, if you did not live through the late 80s, it's hard to communicate exactly how dreamy Lisa Bonet was in 1987. I mean, she was really, really beautiful. She played Denise, the second daughter of Cliff Huxtable, the Bill Cosby character. Basically, if you watch TV and you had a heartbeat, you pretty much had a crush on Lisa Bonet. Everybody thought Lisa Bonet was going to be a huge star. In 1987, Cosby spun off the character of Denise Huxtable uh, into her own show, A Different World, which focused on the character of Denise attending a traditionally black college, Hillman College, uh, which is a fictional redress of the real-life Howard University. There, the thing was that Lisa Bonet, the actress and the woman, did not conform to the wholesome image that Bill Cosby had created for Denise Huxtable. Smelling a film career in the offing, Bonet in 1987 took a role in the sexy horror thriller movie called Angel Heart, which was based on a novel, Falling Angel by William Hjortzberg, published in 1978. Falling Angel, the novel, is brilliant. I've read it. Angel Heart, the movie, is utterly terrible. The movie generated controversy because of a battle with the MPAA ratings board, principally over a sex scene involving Lisa Bonet, where bloody rainwater spills down over her boobs. This was not the wholesome image that Cosby and his lackeys wanted for Denise Huxtable. 
Angel Heart was in theaters in March 1987, while Bonet was still on the main Cosby show and preparing to spin off onto Different World, which premiered in September. What's ironic, this shows you the cultural mores of the late 80s, doing a hardcore but fake sex scene with Mickey Rourke with chicken blood raining down on her boobs was a considerably lesser sin than the entirely natural and human reality of getting pregnant in real life, which Lisa Bonet did just after the break of the first season of Different World in summer 1988. Oh, did I mention uh, that her husband was Lenny Kravitz? This was utterly unacceptable in 80s TV world. Lisa Bonet, a happily married woman, decided to have a baby with her husband, which is a totally normal thing that normal people do in the real world. But because she was playing a college student on a show aimed at a wholesome audience, this created an existential crisis for the producers of A Different World. Under no circumstances could Denise Huxtable ever be shown as being pregnant. I mean, the horror. Basically, there were two choices. One, do the dumb thing that is occasionally done on TV shows, which is to conceal the actress's pregnancy through trickery and pretend like nothing's going on. That was recently, more recently done on Mad Men. Or two, write her out of the show. On A Different World, the producers chose door number two. Lisa Bonet left the show, had her baby in real life. Uh, that baby is now the very beautiful and talented Zoe Kravitz. Uh, and Lisa's career entered a gradual decline, never again attaining the prominence that she had when she did Angel Heart. In the meantime, A Different World, suddenly deprived of its star and its ostensible basis for existing, scrambled to pivot to focus on other characters to try to stay alive. A Different World did manage to survive and thrive. Uh, it stayed on the air until 1993, and the show did tackle a lot of socially relevant issues in the early 90s that other shows wouldn't touch. The AIDS epidemic, for instance, or various aspects of the African-American experience. The show also burnished the reputation of historically black colleges like Howard University, uh, which I said it was ostensibly based on. Though originally developed as a vehicle for a star whose career didn't quite pan out, you can argue that A Different World rose well above its humble beginnings and ultimately contributed more to the cultural conversation than The Cosby Show did. So let's look at my pop music guesses. I wrote down who I thought were the most popular, meaning best-selling, recording artists in 1988. So here are my guesses. One, Michael Jackson. Two, U2. Three, Phil Collins. Again, I was so close and yet so far. I specifically remember that Michael Jackson's album Bad came out in the latter half of 1987. Record companies tend to string out the life, uh, the lifespan of big albums releasing singles several months apart to keep the artist on the radio and keep the album selling for as long as possible. So I figured uh, with the release in uh, uh, mid to 87 that Jackson would still be on the top of the charts uh, through, throughout, well, most of 1988. So this was my reasoning for putting him at the top. Same, too, for U2, whose groundbreaking album The Joshua Tree came out in 1987. To me, the melody of the song With or Without You is basically the soundtrack to 1988 for me, so I think of that year whenever I hear that song. I was badly wrong on these guesses. Uh, I totally forgot George Michael, who was top of the charts in 1988 thanks to his album Faith. I really didn't like that album uh, too much. Then again, I didn't like Bad either. My favorite album of 1987 was Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction, which uh, actually was number four in 1988. Madonna, quintessential symbol of the 80s, was number two in 1988, 
Her album, You Can Dance, was big at that time. Jackson was at number three. The hype over Bad was tremendous. That was Jackson's first studio album since Thriller in 1982, which of course was the biggest album of all time, so expectations were just ridiculously high. And uh, as you might imagine, the album did not meet those expectations. There's not really a catchy single like Thriller or Billie Jean on uh, the Bad album, and in my personal opinion, the album contains the number one most annoying Michael Jackson song of all time, I Just Can't Stop Loving You. The producers were hoping that Bad would sell 100 million copies. Thriller sold 65 million. Bad ultimately ended up selling 35 million. So does that count as a disappointment? Well, I guess if you're Michael Jackson, I guess it does. You could argue that the beginning that Bad was the beginning of the end for Michael Jackson. He was at the peak of his stardom about 1984-1985 while still touring the world on Thriller. He visited the White House, he had a merchandising deal with Pepsi, and he was in many ways the face of the decade. That was the era, though, when he began his obsessive plastic surgery binge, his childlike behavior, and that sort of thing. The bad era, 1987-88, was when it began to affect his public perception. You get the sense that prior to bad, superstardom was easy for Jackson, or at least easier. After 1987, it seems to be more of a slog. He was still five years away from the child abuse allegations and record companies suing him, but bad definitely marks the fulcrum between two eras of Michael Jackson's career. As I finish out this episode, I want to pick up one thread that I mentioned a while ago, uh, which is Die Hard, the classic Bruce Willis action movie. Uh, it's mentioned in Jake's 88. Um, and this film was my guess for the top grossing film of 1988. I was wrong about that, but Die Hard has a curious cultural resonance that I think the other big movies of that year don't have. We just passed the Christmas season, and once again, the debate renewed itself. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? It takes place on Christmas Eve. There are plenty of Christmas-related references in the film. Now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. But without taking a side on whether Die Hard is a Christmas film, I do remind you that when it came out in 1988, it was not marketed in any way as a Christmas movie. It was released in the summer on July 15th. Die Hard is in many ways the perfect artifact of the 80s. Its visual look encapsulates what 1988 was supposed to look like. As an action film, it's absolutely perfect. The pacing and direction are spot on, it's exciting all the way through, and it makes great use of its talent. Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber is one of the best villains in all of movies. I think it's telling that Die Hard was inducted into the Library of Congress's National Film Registry list as being culturally and historically significant in American history. Incidentally, Roger Rabbit was as well. Rain Man, however, is not on that list. The film Die Hard was based on a 1979 novel by Roderick Thorpe called Nothing Lasts Forever. I read that book. It was terrible. The movie was much, much better. Bruce Willis, then most famous for the TV show Moonlighting, was kind of a gamble as an action star in 1988. He was known before that primarily as a comedian, uh, and th this movie, of course, made him an action star. Die Hard traffics in a lot of cultural angst that was swirling around in 1988. The company that owns the skyscraper in the film, Nakatomi Corporation, is Japanese. In the late 80s, there was a tremendous amount of anxiety in the United States over what was perceived to be outsized Japanese influence in the American economy. 
The Japanese are buying everything was a common sentiment at this time. It even showed up on a TV commercial in the presidential campaign that year. I do not remember for which campaign it was, but I do remember seeing the image of the White House with a Japanese flag flying over it. The specter of terrorism is present in Die Hard, but the producers chose not to hit it that hard. Hans and his gang are mostly Germans. The most famous terrorist group from West Germany was the Red Army Faction, also known as the Bader Meinhof Gang, but their heyday was long over by 1988 and several of their leaders were dead or in prison. The Bader Meinhof Gang officially disbanded in 1998. Hans isn't even really a terrorist. Uh, not to spoil the film, I'm sure you've seen it, but he and his gang are after securities in the Nakatomi Building's vault, not a political objective. The way Die Hard avoids terrorism is interesting. Now, while it was in release, several Americans were still being held hostage in Lebanon. That was the group that uh, Reagan tried unsuccessfully to get released by bribing the government of Iran with weapons sales. Uh, that was uh, the genesis of the Iran-Contra scandal. Die Hard came out less than two weeks after the shootdown of Iran Air 655 and five months before the bombing of Pan Am 103. I definitely remember the day that uh, Die Hard was released. Uh, I did not see it on that day, but I remember it coming out in theaters. 20th Century Fox wanted the hype of Roger Rabbit to die down a little bit, which it had. Uh, Roger Rabbit had come out in June. July 15th, 1988 was a day I remember vividly. Uh, I was living at that time in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, and on that day, which was a Friday, a series of thunderstorms developed over the Great Plains. A tornado spawned from that storm uh, and descended over the Omaha Council Bluffs metro area wasn't yet touching the ground while it was over Omaha, but the funnel touched down in Council Bluffs, uh, destroying several blocks worth of houses, particularly around Avenue K. The tornado of 1988 was the biggest storm to hit the area since the legendary 1975 tornado that struck central Omaha. No one was killed in 1988, but I remember power was out for days. Nearly every tree in the metro area was completely shredded. The twister went right over the house I was staying in, uh, and it was one of the most bizarre experiences of my life. If you've never been in a tornado, it is really hard to imagine what it's like. It's very, very weird. There's a sequence in my novel, Jake's 88, that depicts this event. So if you want to know what it was like, read the book. I think I'll be doing one more bonus episode on the 80s, which will probably come out after the release of Jake's 88. Uh, remember, Jake's 88 is coming out on Amazon on January 15th. It'll be available in both uh, ebook, Kindle, uh, and paperback formats. If you're hearing this before January 15th, uh, it's available for pre-order. After January 15th, you can get it. You probably already listened to the Second Decade Main podcast. I try to drop these off-topic episodes at the same time as main ones, though not always. As usual, if you like the show, please do click those little stars on iTunes. A five would be very nice, and leave a review. You can become a, pa- a patron on my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash Sean Munger. I have a public Facebook page. Look for Sean the History Guy. Sorry, I don't use Twitter anymore, but I do have a YouTube channel. Anyway, thanks for listening and have a good evening. The theme music for Off Topic is called Stealth Groover by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? 
That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.